arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Dodge City is the pure definition of the West. Located near Fort Dodge on the Santa Fe Trail, it started in 1872 as an outpost for buffalo hunters and traders. But when the railroad reached Dodge, so did cattle drives from Texas that would eventually transform Dodge City into the wickedest city in the West. Today, you can live the legend of the West in Dodge City. Start planning your Dodge City adventure today. Visit our website at www.visitdodgecity.org or give us a call at 1-800-OLD-WEST. We want to invite you to get the heck into Dodge. One summer, we took a wonderful, albeit rush, vacation around the western United States. Places such as Deadwood, South Dakota and Dodge City, Kansas were spectacular to someone from back east. And very hot. The air conditioner was on in that car all the time. I began wondering, as I constantly do, as I drove mile after mile on the flat plains of the United States, what if present-day people could take a vacation to Dodge City, but then that vacation present-day city becomes a city of the old West for real? The story I wrote preceded HBO's Westworld, but I was familiar with the 1973 movie with Yul Brenner. I wanted reality, not androids and robots. That aspect was not even the central theme of my story, so I wrote Shootout at Coldwater Canyon when I got back to L.A. I would pass the Coldwater Canyon exit on the Ventura Freeway about once a week, and that's where I got the name. Reed Roy's rights was a take on the Miranda ruling by the Supreme Court in 1966. How could a piece of hardware have rights? Roy would never have a soul, but... What if the artificial life had feelings and reflection and maybe, and just maybe, it had to be respected in some way? This also involves, appropriately, Miranda and her love for Roy. Tonight I've added a mind twister, a mind twister, Sweep the Sweeper, how a lost lover haunts the reality of a man who lost her. The Trifector, tonight. On Fitton on the Air, from Compilation by Robert P. Fitton, begins now. Shootout at Coldwater Canyon by Robert P. Fitton. Linda touched the mascara brush to her eyelid as the elevator doors parted. Jack's fat frame squeezed inside. Good morning, Jack. Where the hell is Guinness? It's five minutes to eight and he's not in the elevator? Guinness is always such a precise bastard. Oh, good old Elmer Guinness, said Linda. I'll tell you what he needs. Hey, who's Elmer Guinness? asked Andy from the 15th floor. Jack looked at Linda. You don't know Elmer Guinness? Quiet little Elmer who leaves his mother's house exactly at 6.45 every morning, said Jack. Walks like a geek with his briefcase to the bus. He don't even own a car. Linda finished her mascara. He's a little guy with thinning hair, brown, brown speckled glasses. Confidentially, I think he's got some kind of syndrome. 
What are you, a psychiatrist or something? asked Jack. Screw you, Jack. Touchy, touchy. What side of someone's bed did you get up on this morning? That's for me to know and for you not to find out. Jack wedged his round belly between Andy and the wall. The problem with Guinness is he can't take a joke. When I put that centerfold on his hard drive, he went wild. His face was bright red, said Linda. Right, Jack? Jack's belly laugh was muffled by the tiny elevator. Oh, yeah. Oh, Guinness was pretty miffed. I can't wait to see what happens on the company vacation. Are you going, Andy? She asked and started filing her nails. The elevator slowed at the 15th floor. What's the name of the place, Jack? Yester times? I think you mean yesteryear, said Andy. Supposed to recreate the old West. Sure, I'm going, but about time this company paid for something. I'll get Guinness good this time. Well, maybe he won't go, said Andy, walking outside. He'll go, buckaroo, said Jack. What have you got planned, Jack? asked Linda as the door is closed. Oh, I ain't telling you. He moved toward her and brushed his stomach against her dress. Get the hell away from me, will you, Jack? Well, you can't blame a guy for trying. She produced a coy smile. Not here. Later. Elma carried the printout from the back office, but slowed when he saw Jack and Linda move out of the elevator. His stomach muscles tightened, and he was not sure if he should retreat into the office. Linda always moved her form-fitting skirt seductively when she approached him. Alma waited for the low, sultry voice and heavy, dark eyes. Hi, Elmer. What an unexpected pleasure, Linda. He smiled tenuously as he shifted his weight from foot to foot as her full-scented perfume surrounded him. She ran her finger along his bow tie. I was just wondering, Elmer. Wondering? Yes. I was wondering if there's a swimming pool at yesteryear. Jack leaned his pudgy face around the filing cabinet. I wanted to try out some of my new swimsuits. I, I, I don't know anything about skins, uh, swimsuits. Uh, swimsuits and pools, I don't. You are going on the trip. She adjusted his glasses and puckered her lips. Aren't you, Elmer? I uh, believe I am. History and the Old West are favorite subjects of mine. That's nice. She flung her coat over her shoulder and started back to her alcove. Elmer slowly moved his eyes on her swaying torso. As she turned, he looked away quickly. Somebody bumped Jack near the filing cabinet as they passed. Jack held the man by the suspenders and shook him. Hey, watch where you're going. What did I do? Nobody pushes Jack Caulfield. Jack Ballfield, Elmer muttered under his breath. Jack slammed the man against the metal cabinet. Don't let it happen again. Jack dragged his fingers through his moose-dirty blonde hair. As he turned, Elmer popped back into his office. His heart beating loudly, Elmer moved by his computer to the window. Traffic was heavy on the George Washington Bridge. Driving in traffic was always so stressful. Life moved too fast. The tension built within his temples. Despite the teasing from his fellow workers, he was looking forward to the weekend and his time at yesteryear. Farnsworth's velvet white hair contrasted with his robust frame. His blue-knitted blazer and white turtleneck promoted a relaxed appearance, but his accent elevated his persona as owner and guide of yesteryear.
Mr. Bennett's company has been invited to yesteryear. As your time here progresses, I dare say you will ask yourselves where fantasy begins and reality ends. Jack leaned past Elmer and cupped his hand into Linda's ear. Sure, we're invited. Pay the big bucks, you get invited. Farnsworth stepped past Mr. Bennett on the boardwalk and moved toward the stagecoach. I'm sorry, sir. I didn't hear exactly what you said. Jack rubbed his mouth. Well, I, uh... Were you referring to the fee that I charge your company? Asked Farnsworth. Well, yeah, you're making a killing. Farnsworth nodded and pursed his lips slightly as he returned to the front of the saloon. Money's paid only go to the maintenance of yesteryear. Jack looked at Linder and rolled his eyes. Oh, bullshit. Farnsworth folded his arms. I would only ask that while you're here, you observe one simple rule. Yeah, tip the owner, said Andy, looking for Jack's approval. Yeah, that's a good one, Andy, a good one. My rule is simple. Do unto others as you would want done unto you. I knew this guy had some kind of religious thing here. You know, the non-profit for taxes, said Jack. He slapped Elmer on the back. Right, Guinness? Elmer exhaled quickly and answered in a raspy voice. Right, Jack. Farnsworth paused at the saloon doors. Now, I will see you all for brunch. Please join me before the experience begins. Farnsworth disappeared through the swinging half-doors. Elmer lingered while the others filed into the old saloon. He peered down the dusty main road toward the mountains. This town was only 20 miles outside the city, but he didn't see anything modern. The cow punches were sweaty and dirty, and the horses drank from weathered troughs along the boardwalk. He picked up his plaid suitcase and walked alone on the boardwalk. A buffet table was spread before the bar, and Jack held a plate loaded with donuts. Linda giggled as Jack waited at the coffee pot. She whispered something to Jack when Elmer moved closer. He waved Elmer forward. Hey, Guinness, down here. Come here, the coffee's fresh. I could use a cup of coffee. Good, good. Elmer walked by the coal cuts and donuts and set his suitcase on the floor as everyone scattered. Jack stood with his cup of coffee and donuts with Linda by the bar. Elmer took out one of the styrofoam cups and placed it under the coffee spigot. He pulled the lever and the steamy black liquid twisted into the cup. The lever seemed loose and he pushed it back, but the coffee kept pouring into the cup. Oh my God! The cup overflowed. Coffee spread over the plastic tablecloth and cascaded onto the wood floorboards. Help me! Help me! Guinness, what the hell are you doing? Asked Mr. Bennett from behind. It, it, it stuck, Mr. Bennett. Oh, really, Guinness? He stepped over to the coffee puddles and fiddled with the lever. I, I am so sorry. Jack, half-bitten donut in his hand, had fallen into a side chair and was laughing. Everyone was laughing. You did this, Jack. Maintenance people in western garb raced from the back room and tilted the silver coffee urn upward. Other people appeared with mops, and Elmer stormed over to Jack. What's the matter, Guinness? You out of the endless cup of coffee? <laughs> you really annoy me, Jack. Oh, said Jack, turning down his mouth. I annoy him. This was not my fault. Elmer turned. His suitcase sat in a lake of coffee. He ran forward but slipped. He could hear Jack's deep laugh behind him as he looked up at Mr. Bennett. 
I am not going to put up with him anymore. What are you babbling about, Guinness? Coffee dripped from the bottom of his suitcase. He closed his eyes briefly and stomped outside. When he reached the boardwalk, he hit the suitcase against the wood several times. Farnsworth emerged from the salon. Are you all right, Mr. Guinness? I think so, he said, brushing the coffee from his shirt. A dirty trick. Yes, Jack is noted for his dirty tricks. Retaliate. Oh, no, I, I don't believe in violence of any kind. If I act violent or retaliate, I'm no better than he is. Farnsworth nodded. Surely there are times when you must meet evil forces head on. I have to work with these people. I have to roll with the punches. Why? I agree we all have roles to play, and I agree violence is not always the answer. You're in a rut. Rolling with the punches is hazardous to your health. It is? Yes, I'm glad you're here. Very glad indeed. Elmer, in new white chaps and a black and white fuzzy vest, leaned back on the bench across from the hotel. He positioned himself behind a wood porch support. Jack fit tightly into his dark pants, leather vest, and black shirt, and he placed his boot on the boardwalk. He dragged the spur along the wood and laughed. <laughs> then he adjusted his dark Stetson and drew his gun. Andy opted to don the garb of the town's lawyer and checked his pocket watch at the end of a long gold chain. They both turned as Linda and a few of her girlfriends walked from the hotel dressed as saloon girls with low-cut bright satin dresses and wide curled hair. Jack pointed toward Elmer. He walked ahead of the others as if he were going to draw his gun. Elmer stood and backed up against the barbershop window. When Jack reached the edge of the boardwalk, he quickly yanked out a pearl-handled gun from his side holster. Bang! Bang! Guinness! Draw your gun, Elmer, said Linda. Elmer fiddled with the long-handled gun, finally lifting the heavy weapon up, but Jack pointed his gun. Liquor reeked on his breath, and his eyes were already bloodshot. You better practice your draw, boy! Bang! Bang! He's a little late, said Linda, placing her hand on her hip. Elma tried not to stare at her propped-up breasts. Jack pretended to blow smoke out his barrel. Story of his life. Hey, Guinness, you look like a cow in that vest. Pink shirt, pretty tough. You all think you're so funny. Linda moved next to him and put her arm around him. You want to be my date, Elmer? Date? he asked, swallowing. Farnsworth in his blue blazer and white turtleneck appeared behind the post. I hope you will all find the accommodations here realistic. Sure scared the hell out of Guinness, <laughs> said Jack. Imagine yourselves not in New York, but on the high plains of Wyoming Territory. 1869. Jack put his weapon back in the holster. Slick, real slick, Farnsworth. Excuse me? Fire your guns. Blanks, of course. Remember that, Guinness. I know how trigger-happy you can be. <laughs> Believe me, you really are back in 1869. Jack waited until Farnsworth had walked out of sight around the adjacent building. 1869, my ass. You can still see the radio tower out there on the hill. Elmer adjusted his glasses and squinted. 
The narrow red and white tower extended skyward atop the rounded hill behind the church. Then don't look at it. You telling me what to do, Guinness? Jack drew his gun again. Bang! 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 Who, me? A ruddy, leather-skinned man in a brown shirt and tarnished badge walked briskly across the dirt. He grabbed Jack by the arm and pulled him back. What seems to be the trouble here? And who the hell are you? asked Jack. Will Jarvis. I'm the marshal of this town. Yeah, and I'm President Clinton. Funny you don't look like President Clinton, said Andy. Yeah, too chubby, said Linda. You fellas got a dispute, then you settle it without guns. I ain't gonna have no more killing in my town. A red-faced man in a long, dark coat walked down the boardwalk. Who is he, the undertaker? asked Andy. Parson. I wanted to remind everyone of the service Sunday morning at the church. We welcome all worshippers. Jack elbowed Elmer. You can sing in the choir, Guinness. <laughs> the parson tilted his hat. Good day. Now you boys behave yourself, said Jarvis. You seen the doc? I think he's been hitting the bottle again. Probably sleeping it off. He kept the butt of his hand on his revolver handle as he crossed the street toward the hotel. Jack removed his gun again and tried spinning it. Hey, those guys are damn good actors. Right, Guinness? Seems pretty real to me. Small collie dog scurried down the street and up to Elmer. He bent down and patted the dog. Good boy, good boy. Farnsworth must pay them big bucks, even the dog. <laughs> Elmer brushed the dog's head and muzzle. The dog, his tail wagging, turned toward Jack. He jumped up, his paws planted on Jack's protruding stomach. Jack shoved the dog and swung his leg through the air. The collie whimpered as he fell. You mangy mutt! Hey, leave that dog alone! Yeah, and who's gonna make me? Jack put his gun in his holster and grabbed Elmer by the lapels. You never talk to me like that, Guinness, you understand? And you leave that dog alone. Screw you! Jack smacked his fists into Elmer's cheek. Elmer fell to the dirt. His head spun and he had trouble seeing Jack. You never talk to me like that, big man. Without his glasses, the town was a blur. He heard Jack talking to Linda and Andy as they moved away. As he reached around the dirt for his glasses, the dog licked his cheek. The collie's dark eyes came into view when Elmer adjusted his glasses. Good boy, good boy. He held his swollen cheek. Across the street, Jack was playing with his revolvers, placing them near some bearded settler's head. The man went running back down the boardwalk as Jack's oh, aggravating laugh yeah, echoed down yeah. the street. He pushed open the saloon doors and Linda and Andy trailed behind. Elma stood, dog by his side, and brushed the dirt off his white chaps. His new white leather boots crunched as he moved along the dirt road under the hot sun. The dog followed alongside as he climbed onto the boardwalk and gazed into the general store. People bought merchandise at the long counter and goods were stacked to the wood-beam ceiling. He stepped past the sheriff's office and into the hotel lobby. A bath would feel real good right now. He heard some commotion in the saloon just ahead as he debated whether to go upstairs. The sheriff's door flew open and a deputy raced after the sheriff down the boardwalk. Elma shuffled forward. 
When he opened the saloon's half doors, the sheriff, his gun drawn, ran up to Jack. A blonde-haired man in a faded gray Confederate uniform was sprawled at Jack's feet as a short man with spectacles and a medical bag ran down the stairs from the second floor. What the hell have you done? Hey, these people saw it. He swung at me first. The doctor quickly moved past Jack and knelt next to the soldier. The doctor listened to his chest and the rev rolled his eyes. When he focused on Jack, he sat up. Listen, pal, what a stunt. I think I'm going to like this place, said Jack, leaning toward Andy. The soldier held his jaw. He quickly stood and clenched his fists. You want to see a stunt? Hey, you get paid to play the part. The sheriff held him back as Farnsworth rushed into the saloon. What do you think you're doing, Caulfield? Enjoying myself. Farnsworth glanced at the rebel soldier. Bring Condos to the first aid station. He turned to Jack and pointed his finger. I'm going to tell you this once, Caulfield. Control yourself with my people here and with Mr. Guinness. What are you, watching us? Farnsworth's jaw moved downward and he raised his left brow. Do not challenge me or you'll regret it. Oh, really? asked Jack, nodding and opening his mouth. He lifted a beard to his lips. Yeah, you look like a tough guy, too. Farnsworth furrowed his brow and stepped toward him. You've been bullying people all your life, Jack. Maybe it's time to come to terms with your own actions. Who the hell do you think you are? A man who has your life in the palm of his hand. He stared into Jack's eyes and then reversed direction across the saloon's wood floorboards. Jack watched him through the exit doors and turned to the others. Screw him. We're going to have a good time here. Drinks are on old Jack. The oil lamps shone through the smoky haze and the light flickered over the saloon's dance hall and gambling room walls. Elmer, fresh from supper and a hot bath, watched Linda dancing with the other woman on stage, ruffling her red dress as an energetic piano player moved his fingers quickly over the ivory keys. Dust-laden cowboys pounded on the wooden table, scooping up beer mugs from scantily clad slim waitresses. Elmer stared into the mirror at the more subdued brown-vested outfit he had donned after the hot bath. He adjusted his large Stetson. Maybe Jack wouldn't poke fun at the more traditional clothing. Across the hall, away from the piano player, a single shielded metal lamp hung over a green felt table. Jack was nestled between two buxom women with blue ribbons in their curls. He held a slew of red-backed cards and smoked a stubby cigar. Converse, still in his gray Confederate uniform, stood in the shadows near the front frosted windows and studied Jack's every move. Across the room, the sheriff watched the dance show, but kept a steady eye on Jack at the poker table. Andy threw money on the stage. Linda grabbed the bills and stuffed it between her breasts. Elmer looked back to the gambling table. Jack had muttered something to the soldier. Elmer tiptoed along the wall so he could hear better. Cheat my girl! said the rebel, pointing to the blonde on Jack's right. Well, ain't that too bad, Converse. You better watch him, he told the well-dressed man at the head of the table. That bastard's won every hand up till now. Well, I have three kings, said the man, and he spread his cards out on the green felt. Nah, I got two threes, said another man, throwing down his cards. Well, 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 said Jack. I got the works, ten... Jack, 
Queen, King, Ace. I challenge that, said the well-dressed man in the gray suit and vest. Jack motioned with his hands. Pay up. The man stood and produced a small derringer. I don't take kindly to cheetahs, mister. Take off your coat. The rebel moved to the table. Yeah, take off your coat, fat boy. Who are you calling fat boy? asked Jack as he sprang to his feet. A wave of flowery fragrance surrounded Elmer. He turned as Linda rubbed her velvet dress next to his body. You like my dancing, Elmer? She ran her fingers down his neck. Jack's in trouble. Thought you might throw up some money. Elmer glanced at the money stuck between her cleavage. When he looked back at the gambling table, Jack had drawn his gun and fanned it in front of the rebel. Elmer rushed across the saloon, bumping into people and tripping over one of the table legs. Jack, are you crazy? He bit into the cigar stub. Out of my way, Guinness, before you get hurt. I don't think that fat boy has the guts to put his gun where his mouth is, said Converse. Jack puffed on the cigar and fired once. Converse's gun fell and he grabbed his stomach. He staggered toward Jack, clutching for the chair, but he collapsed on the floor. You killed him, Jack! shouted Elmer. Yeah, right. Jack sat down at the poker table again. Come on, boys. I'll give you your money back. Let's have another game. More beers all around. This is too much fun. The sheriff appeared through the crowd. He hurried over to the rebel and bent over. God, he's dead. Yeah, finds where it pulled that trick this afternoon. Jack shuffled the cards and started dealing. Come on, sit down. The sheriff drew his gun and tightened his bushy brows. Gonna have to bring you in, Mr. Caulfield. Okay, I'll bite, said Jack, still dealing. You want to lock me up for the night? Hey, this is the old West, right? <laughs> what happened? Asked Andy, moving toward Linda. Oh, Jack just killed the Reb soldier, Converse, she said in a low voice and then laughed. <laughs> Jack checked his card. Self-defense, everybody's sorry. You can tell Farnsworth he's doing an A-plus job. Sheriff circled the table. You better come with me. That Reb has a family. They're going to want to string you up, Carfield, and bring you in for your own good. Farnsworth must pay you big bucks, that's all I can say. Right, Andrew? Andy's sober expression frightened Elmer. The rebel was still on the floor and didn't appear to be breathing. Who the hell is Farnsworth? asked the sheriff. Oh, going for more realism, asked Jack, winking. He looked up as the parson moved up to the table. And the consoling parson. Parson looked at the soldier and then faced Jack. God help you if the Converse boys find out. Right, right, come on, let's play another hand. The sheriff produced metal handcuffs. Jack put out the cigar in the ashtray and raised his hands. Guilty as charged, bring me in. <laughs> the sheriff clamped the cuffs around Jack's wrists and marched him through the saloon. Linda nuzzled up to Elmer. Now that he's away for the night, Elmer, maybe you'd like to come up to my room. Shut up, Linda. He stepped forward and watched as two townspeople lifted the soldier up by the hands and feet. The rebel's chest remained fixed, and he had the glazed dead man's stare as they carried him from the saloon. Farnsworth had promised a fine line between fantasy and reality, but Elmer was unable to distinguish between the two. Elmer rose early and ate a large breakfast of steak and eggs. The hotel didn't serve bagels. A slight haze hung over the valley as the sun warmed the air. 
At the livery, they gave him a gentle young horse, and he slowly trotted through town. But as he passed the adobe building with the barred windows, he debated whether to see Jack. The vivid early morning light coated the layers of sandstone cliffs outside of town. Where were the trees and the radio antenna? He softly hit the horse with his spur heel and moved forward. The horse galloped past the church and the red schoolhouse tucked near the hill. He leaned and the horse started up the sandy trail and a wide, wispy cloud rose before him. A massive, prickly cactus popped over a stretch of grassy brown valley to the horizon. His heart slammed against his vest as he settled in the sweaty leather saddle. The town was positioned along a stagecoach road along treeless rolling hills to the east. His sporadic breathing twisted his already fearful emotions. For more than a half an hour, he let the sun warm his face and wondered if he was dreaming. When he finally opened his eyes in the morning glare, to the south, a cloud of dust like a locust plague rose high into the blue sky as four riders raced toward town. He thought of Converse's body spread across the floor last night and how everyone kept warning Jack about the anger of the rebels' brothers. The canteen water was cold on his lips as he watched the four riders slow on the main street. As expected, they veered toward the jail and hitched their horses to the wood post out front. He lifted the binoculars from the side pouch. The doctor emerged from the hotel on the boardwalk. More people appeared in the street as word spread. The four horses remained hitched out front and the jailhouse door was open. Elmer did not see the sheriff. A dark-haired man wearing a hat, pulled down at the brim, burst from the open door with two guns drawn. The assembling crowd stayed back on the main road. Two other men in dirty cow-punching chaps shoved a handcuffed jack onto the boardwalk. They took him under the arms and dragged his feet across the red dirt. Although some distance away, Elmer heard yelling, but through the field glasses he could clearly see Jack protesting. A fourth man, with both guns drawn, backed out of the door jailway and shut the door. Someone had removed Jack's handcuffs and gave him his pearl-handled revolver. The crowd ran back down the main street, past the hotel and the saloon, as the four brothers spread across the street. Jack waved his hands fanatically in the air. Behind the post in the boardwalk shadows near the barber shop, Linda and Andy peered down the street. The four Converse boys lowered their arms into a drawing position as Jack raised his hands skyward. His pleas echoed up the mountain. The men drew in unison, and Jack was hurled back into the streets. The Converse boys tucked away their guns and headed for the horses in front of the jail. Jack's motionless figure lay in the dirt as they mounted their horses and trotted down the street at a slower pace than their arrival just minutes before. The crowd slowly merged forward once they were out of town. Elmer started down the hill. His horse negotiated the narrow trail back to level ground. Andy stood in front of the crowd and covered his eyes. Linda, in her satin red dress from the evening before spread over the ground, wept over Jack's rounded frame. Red, crusty holes perforated Jack's black shirt. His eyes were closed, and his large face flattened in death. Linda looked up, her mascara drained over his cheeks. Oh, Elmer, we can't find Farnsworth. This, this is real. Elmer, what do we do? asked the red-eyed Andy. Elmer looked at Jack one final time as the collie dog ran up to the horse. His saddlebags were fully packed and he turned his horse west again. 
He trotted out of town with the dog as Linda wailed loudly, begging for help. Along a side street, a single pine box jiggled in the undertaker's wagon. Outside of town, Elma Guinness took a deep, clear breath as the breeze warmed his face. He smiled at the dog and headed across the plains, his destination uncertain, but his course freely set. Read Roy is Rights by Robert P. Fitton. Miranda's raven hair flew behind her as she ran across the backland. Her first memories were of this area. Now the colony was nearing the 70 Arphaeucus system, and the imposing virtuality of Earth, hovering in the dome above her, made her wonder what the new planet would yield. Planetary scans showed no intelligent life on the surface. Odd dreams and the guardian memory irregularities were widespread throughout the colony. At the observation wall, the second colony valley was visible from the surround path. Roy! Roy! Miranda panicked when her guardian lagged behind. Many times lately, Roy could not keep pace. He was with her when she was born and supposed to follow her throughout her life. His high-pitched whistle had alerted her ahead to his presence, and his rounded, reflective body rolled up the pathway. He enunciated every syllable as he spoke. Your mother will be looking for us. We are not allowed in the second colony without permission. Oh, you're so human, Roy. For a guardian, that is. In fact, in every way, you're like us. You feel, you think. That is my design. Yes, and yet you serve us. What about your feelings, Roy? What do you want? Guardians have no status. We cannot express our feeling. Oh, guardians have feelings. I know you do. You have neuropods. Miranda stared across the valley as she spoke. I've always pictured the second colony as 70 Orf. If you were allowed inside, you would not want to look. Miranda smiled and tiptoed around the surround path. He placed her fingers on the backland transparency. A central transport track, raised high on support trestles, bisected the tapering green valley. We should all be allowed to enjoy the openness of the second colony. Yet here we are, penned within the megacity. Why? Miranda, you are too young to be speculating about all these things. Soon we will orbit the planet. I want to know. Please, Roy, please. Roy's woven aqua-absorption patches brightened. Please? His voice sounded clearly through the black perforations under his patches. Miranda always believed that a human being lived behind those patches rather than a constructed machine. The destiny of man left Earth with a charter allowing everyone in the valley. A charter was written on Earth, said Miranda. Yes, you are listening during your instruction. You are very bright. Roy. This charter provided the guidelines for the journey into space. Our primary purpose is to make contact with new life forms in the 70 Orphaeucus system. You will see that planet soon. We will both see it, but Father says the planet harbors no life. Maybe not, but what is life? Anything that survives, like you, Roy. You have substance. Roy turned from the valley and faced her. 
Guardians have always been machines for mankind. How can that be true? You feel, you love, you hate, you've been given those qualities. What do you think, Roy? It is not for me to say. No one likes a mouthy machine. Miranda smiled, pushed back her hair, and gazed through the transparency. Nor a diplomatic one, either. And I still don't understand why we can't enter the second colony. That was not the original intent. The backland was an area of rest and peace. But power groups developed over the centuries. Only the elite generally used the valley. The rest of us gawk through the surround wall, wishing we could enjoy the open spaces. Roy sputtered and his receptors flickered. Roy, are you all right? Are you affected by the planetary approach? No, that is different. Almost like everyone's bizarre dreams, I fear a shakedown. What does that mean? Nothing. I'm all right. Miranda leaned on the surround wall. The megacity's massive beehive appearance represented confinement. Thousands of windows stared toward the backland as the sun hung low in the dome. The sun is not a reality. I wonder what it's like to have a real sun, a real planet. Maybe 70 Orph is like that. To live on a planet and not pretend to be inside the megacity's virtuality. To escape. Roy, do you wish you could escape yourself? I don't understand. Have movement, feeling, love. I have all those qualities. All Guardians do. But no official status within the colony. Miranda hugged his cold, smooth shell. I love you, Roy. I love you too, Miranda. She wished she could get inside and really hug him. Our time grows short. Your mother will be worried. Miranda focused on her mother's clear green eyes. Mother, what is a shakedown? Oh, nothing. She at once turned away and went back to the access screen, but Miranda followed her. Roy says the same thing. Her mother looked up from the screen. Sometimes guardians don't always function the way they should, dear. I think you are reaching an age where you will begin to see things as they really are. Is he sick? She placed her hand on Miranda's cheek. Yes. Roy may need to be supplemented with another guardian. No! Tears welled in Miranda's eyes as she backed away. No, how can you say such things? He's my friend. It's your friend. Someone constructed Roy. Someone can fix him. Oh, guardians are supplemented. It's a part of growing up, Miranda. Things change. You'll understand that when you get older. I don't understand it. What about Roy? Does anybody care about how he feels? You just send him into the compactor like some machine part. What about his spirit? Roy is a guardian, a machine. Roy is my friend. Her father stood in the outer passageway. Oh, I'm glad you're home, Mark. What did they say? We're closing in on 70 Orf. The colony chamber will be sending representatives to the planet. Then we'll all disembark. But we've seen no sign of life on the surface. Disheartening after hundreds of years in space, to say the least. I had the same dream last night, said her mother. Something or someone calling me, reaching out. Miranda threw her arms around her father and he held her hand against her long hair. I don't want Roy to die. Roy is a guardian. Guardians don't die. They're supplemented. It's the law. A new one will be granted to you. She looked into his dark eyes. 
fix him. How about how he feels? Anything that feels should be considered. It's easier to supplement guardians. A new guardian will seem the same. We can make sure its voice is the same, and we can call it Roy if you like. He wouldn't be Roy. Miranda broke her father's touch and ran into her room. She flung herself on the bed and pounded the sleeping blankets, her muffled voice mixed with tears soaking the blankets. You can't let Roy die. You can't. She could hear her father at the doorway talking about traveling to the planet. His voice swung toward her. Tampering with a guardian is a crime, Miranda. Miranda turned over, wiped her eyes, and sat up. He feels just like you or me. He has consciousness. Guardians have no status. You'll understand that when you grow up. Maybe you'd understand if you weren't grown up. Miranda and Roy made permissible journeys on the planet. But when she overheard her father talking about supplementing Roy tomorrow morning, she ventured with Roy further away down the vessel's landing area. The sandy plains and rocky hills fostered no life. She knew her father and then the other mega-city leaders were disappointed. He had spoken all her life about humans making contact with other beings. She had always imagined tall, thin creatures reaching out with spindly hands within a lush forest. Will they transform this planet and make it like the second colony, Roy? Roy paused on the rich, strewn slope. His patches didn't glow as brightly as when he spoke in a lower voice. That will be beyond our lifetimes, Miranda. We really should go back. They will find us. No. They'll supplement you. It is inevitable. Miranda held his heat-warm shell. I won't accept it. They started down the incline again. Roy led her over to the third rock hill. Maybe she could hide him out there. How far are we from the encampment? Four kilometers. Miranda, your mother is calling on my frequency. Please accept what you have to do. I don't want you to die, Roy. She stopped at the top of the ridge and hugged him in the sunlight. I am not too keen on it either. I can hide you out here. For how long? You only have food and water for a few days. And how long can I survive without maintenance? Miranda sat on the boulder. The elongated colony ship filled the hazy distant plains. Roy, I had the best dream. Like something took my mind. I felt the same thing yesterday. Something tugging at my consciousness. Wanting to take me like a virtuality. Yes, that's it. Tugging. Trying to take over. And as I dreamed, I offered no resistance. We all hoped for a planet full of life and have found nothing. Maybe. She stared across the hazy desert. There has to be a way to save you, Roy. My father is afraid of breaking the law. A valid concern. Roy scanned the plains. To journey so long, so many generations, all geared toward contact. A waste. What has the destiny of man gained? Father says a new chance. What can he say? When you grow up... I don't want to hear about growing up. She stood and walked by him, placing her hands on her hips. The blue sky against the desert, although lifeless, contained great beauty. Why do we need to contact intelligent life anyway? 
Can't we find our own way? Roy moved closer. Miranda, sometimes I think you're older than your years. I don't understand what you mean. She smiled and put her hand on his rounded form. They don't see it either. They're all sad because there was no one here to greet us. So what? I suppose humanity has to chart its own way, as always. Miranda bent down and held both sides of his shell. His patches were dimmer in the sunlight and she feared a shakedown. Most of us were never even allowed in the second colony, Roy. Oh, they're all so sad because there was no contact when they can't even give their own, like you, a fair chance. They can't even let you live. They would argue I am not alive. You are alive. You have being. They can't see that essence unless life has evolved biologically on a faraway planet. You may be right. She leaned against Roy. She feared the day that she would not have his touch or listen to his thoughts. They have created in you what they searched for, but they're so eager to destroy consciousness. And what is consciousness? asked Roy. I don't know. An awareness. Feeling that awareness. Can you feel the beauty across the landscape, Roy? Can you see the happiness in my eyes when I see you? Yes, I feel. Exactly. And they want to supplement you. In certain ways, they supplement themselves by their own ways. She nodded and closed her eyes as she nuzzled her head against him. Growing up was not something she wanted to face. Things were much simpler on the colony ship traveling through space. When she was younger, she never had to think about things like being supplemented. Roy, I want to explore this place before you have to be supplemented. Like the old days. Yes, like the old days. Miranda lurched on her travel pack as she followed Roy along the rock ledges. In the afternoon light, a wide, darkened area in the red-shaded rocks caught her attention. Roy cautioned her about not going back to the encampment, but she insisted upon investigating the darkness. In a few minutes, Roy rolled up to the edge of a nearly indiscernible rock rim. Miranda scooted up behind, put her hands on his sphere, and looked over. Sure is dark. I hear something like bells or musical tones. She perked her ears and tilted her head. I don't hear anything. This assortment of frequencies. I assume these frequencies are naturally occurring. Miranda kept her hand on Roy's shell as she approached the edge. Now she heard the tones inside her own head, increasing in intensity like a thousand bells reverberating into the desert air. She felt beads of light dart out of nothingness and quickly disappear. Roy, it's all inside me. It is. Yes, I feel it too. She sensed an odd conveyance as she and Roy were drawn forward to whatever was linked inside. Genetic structures are not important. Let your spirit bring forth and join us. Shed your bodily shell. It is not too late to understand Sweep 
The Sweeper by Robert P. Fitton. Mike released the bowling ball and it slid swiftly down the waxed wood alley, spinning and twisting toward the pins. The sweeper moved above the pins and stopped long enough to block the ball. Great. As if my life hasn't fallen apart enough without a dumb thing like this. That was a strike. Tough luck, Mike, said Tony from the scorer's table. Yeah, tough luck. Mike pushed the button next to the racked bowling balls, but the sweeper remained stuck. He started down the alley and his friends called back from the bench. Mike couldn't care less about what people said ever since Jody died. He reached the end of the alley and had one foot in the gutter as he grabbed the sweeper. Dislodging it would be easy if he just shook it. Voices echoed from behind the wall. Sweep the sweeper. Sweep the sweeper. Mike held the sweeper and looked upward behind the wall. Who's there? I can't loosen this stupid thing. That last one was a perfect strike. Sweep the sweeper. Sweep the sweeper. Wise guys, said Mike as he turned. The bowling alley people and Tony moved down the alley. This thing is stuck. Mike moved out of the path of the sweepers that swept forward. Who are you talking to? asked Tony, looking above the sweeper. The new set of pins was firmly set in place by the machine. Some wise guy up there. The man behind the front desk looked at the sweeper and then at Mike. It's working now. It's all automatic. Will you tell the guy up there to stop it? Up where? Up there where the sweeper comes down. The little man grinned. Right. The only thing behind there are wires and pulleys. Right, said Mike as he and Tony started back up the alley. I heard a voice up there, Tony. Hey, Mike, Fran and I have been thinking you may need to talk to somebody. I've been meaning to mention it to you ever since Jody died. Mike stopped midway in the alley. <laughs> you don't believe me, do you? Tony, there was somebody behind those pins talking to me. This is crazy for crying out loud. Mike dropped Tony at his house and drove to his old empty home. He gripped the wheel as the rain hit the windshield and the wipers slowly pushed back waves of water. The radio blasted out an away game through the car's front speakers. He thought about Jody at the ball game a year ago before she got sick. Her wide smile and bright eyes shone through, thoughts buried deep in his head. She always made him laugh. Sweep the sweeper. Sweep the sweeper. Mike banged the dash. Listen to me. Who are you? What do you want? Is Jody with you? The ball game announcer continued the play-by-play. -play. Mike looked over his shoulder and pulled back on the road. As he passed under each streetlight, he now considered Tony's advice. Speaking to a professional about these odd voices now seemed the logical course. Dr. Dunn's constant smile bothered Mike. He sat in a group session listening to stories of woe while the effervescent Dunn, perched with his clipboard and yellow pad, hurled back platitudes to the group. Let us tell each other how our group experience has gained us the peace of mind we have all sought. Mike rolled his eyes and looked out the window at the green foliage. When the cars and the people became frozen like an action photograph, he pushed his chair back and hurried across the room and leaned on the heater. Street traffic was indeed stuck and a man with a briefcase was halted on the sidewalk. Do you have a problem, Mike? Problem? The whole world has stopped. Excuse me? I said the whole world has stopped. 
Dunn wrote something down on his pad. Perhaps we'll move up to you. What has the group experience brought you? Mike continued to look out the window. The green traffic light never changed. A tractor trailer's wide wheels were turned, but it was motionless at the intersection. You're asking me about the group experience when the whole world has stopped? You miss your wife, don't you, Mike? Tell us about the psychological components of your loss. Mike spun around. Psychological components? What is this, a class in quantum mechanics? Don't you people have any feelings? He stared out the room. Giving up? I tell you, the whole world out there has stopped. Mike pushed the classroom door and ran into the corridor. Outside, a dog's solid head was tilted upward. When he reached the door, he scanned the unchanging scene. Then he moved out the larger door and stepped into a quiet world with sharp shadows. His voice echoed. Hello! Hello! He patted the dog's smooth black fur. The rigid dog had no warmth. Where am I? The dog barked and the truck rounded the corner. Mike spun and faced the school as the dog sniffed his sneakers. This is insane. Where are you people? Where are you? Mike kicked the dirt. Several people joined Dunn in the classroom window. Mike waved his hand through the air and started down the street. His mind was clear about what he had seen, and he didn't dispute what he had heard at the bowling alley. Dunn and Tony were the ones who were mad. Mike entered the ballpark and held his ticket stub as he moved up the ramp into the crowd noise. The overhead light towers blazed across the green grass. He checked his row number. His grandstand seat was near the section where he and Jody used to sit. He tried reasoning out the situation from the moment he had first heard voices above the bowling alley pins. To an outside observer, he probably was crazy. He even questioned his own ability to make rational judgments, but he never stopped believing in what he had seen and heard. He watched the game, keeping score just as he had for Jody, but he was certain that that odd cessation of time and space would have a greater meaning. At the bottom of the seventh, as he jotted down a base hit, the crowd noise dissipated. Mike looked up. The pitcher had completed his windup, released the ball, and had hung in midair halfway to the plate. He stood and studied the man smoking the cigar next to him. Another guy in a red baseball cap lifted a plastic cup to his mouth. Dropping his scorecard, he shuffled back to the grandstand aisle and cupped his hand skyward into the frozen cigarette smoke in the night air. Help me! Help me! Mike! Mike! The distant voice may have come from the playing field. He ran down the stairs toward the first base dugout. Players were caught in action. The next batter had almost completed a practice swing in the on-deck circle. Mike leaped the fence and landed in the dirt. Who's calling me? Mike, it's Jody. Mike walked across the first baseline and onto the infield. He raised his hand over his eyes to block the tower lights, and he scanned the third base stands. He saw her long blonde hair as she waved from the stairs descending onto the playing field. Jody! Mike sprinted diagonally across the infield grass. He raced past the rigid shortstop and across the dirt. Jody neared the bottom of the long cement stairway. She crawled over the green wall and stepped onto the dirt rim. But as she hit the outfield grass, things blurred. 
Images crossed over like a pair of broken binocular lenses. His balance lost. Mike slowed and staggered onto the grass. Jody was only 20 feet away. Jody, where are we? I thought you were dead, Mike. Me? Mike was immobilized on his stomach and attempted to keep his head up. Her outstretched arms were almost as solid as the crowd around the ballpark. With considerable effort, he crawled toward her fractured, overlapped image. I'm not dead. Sweating and severely hampered, Mike held out his hand. Jody's fingertips were only inches away now. With one last thrust, he grabbed her hand. He felt her warm flesh, but in an instant, she was gone. With the crack of the ball, the umpire yelled out and the cops poured out of the dugout. They lifted him under the arms as the crowd booed. He kept calling her name as he was dragged into the dugout. Why had she thought he was dead? You are not supposed to be on the field, said Dr. Dunn. Mike fought to keep his eyes open. He stared at the traffic flowing by the outside intersection and realized the only reason he was not locked up because he told Tony he'd be willing to undergo therapy with Dunn. Jody's touch was so vivid. Somehow she was alive within the frozen morass at the ballpark. I understand. You loved your wife, didn't you, Mike? What kind of an inane question is that? Dunn removed his glasses and squinted. You may have hated your wife for all I know. No. Mike wished he didn't have to listen to this lecture. What do you want to accomplish with all this? Very good. Right to the point. And why were you out on that field? Mike turned from the window. Doesn't matter. No, I think it does. Listen, this session is almost over. Have I gotten my hour's worth? Dunn lifted his glasses back in place. He pressed his lips and stood. At the desk, he wrote out the date and time on a small business card. I saw my wife and I tried to reach for her, but I couldn't. Dunn looked up. I was stopped. I had her hand in mine when it all slipped away. Dunn handed him the card. Next week's appointment was scrawled in red ink. Jody is dead, Mike. No. She thought I was dead. Then what stopped you? I froze up, and then I was back, lying like an idiot on the field. That's good. At least you're embarrassed about it. Who wouldn't be? I know she's alive now. She's out there, somewhere. I know she'll be back. I just know it. Tony and the rest of the team were suspicious about Mike bowling so well. The smile on his face seemed to reflect more than the last successive strike. Something lifted him from within. Tony watched him hold the ball in his hands and move the smooth surface over his palms. The sweeper pulled the pins behind the black curtain and then retracted as the pin setter lowered a new set of candle pins into place. Tony leaned to his friends. Think Mike is finally getting it together. Well, it must be that shrink, said Danny. Tony nodded as Mike moved his arm back. But as he swung the ball forward, the sweeper descended upon the pins and the ball cracked against the wood. Mike gazed back at Tony and then started down the waxed wood. Here we go again. Mike, let the people in the alley take care of it. He should just stay put. Mike reached the end of the alley, squatted down and grabbed both sides of the blue sweeper. He looked upward and shook it. 
Tony moved his pencil over the score sheet and noted the problem with the sweeper, but Mike was climbing behind the pins. Soon his legs and feet disappeared behind the wall of Alley 17. What the hell is he doing? I don't know. Tony set down the pencil and approached the alley. Across the long bowling alley expanse, the ball shot down the wood, colliding into the pins. Through the persistent buzz, Tony balanced himself along the gutters. Mike, get the hell out of there! The sweeper remained stuck in front of the set pins. Tony bent over and looked upward. The wooden connecting sweeper arms were attached to the machine cams. Mike squeezing through the thin, dark opening was unlikely. Mike, where are you? Come on, you're going to get yourself in trouble again. Tony rubbed his cheek and squinted. What is this, some kind of gag? Mike, the maintenance guys from the alley aren't going to be happy. A voice echoed from behind the wall. Sweep, sweep the, the sweeper. sweeper. Sweep, sweep the, the sweeper. My God, who's up there? Sweep, sweep the, the sweeper. sweeper. Sweep the Is that you, Mike? What, is he stuck? I don't even see him, said Tony. Men from behind the desk jogged down the alley. Damn, Mike, here they come. Excuse me, said one of the maintenance guys. He reached by Tony's shoulder and pushed his screwdriver upward. After a few careful adjustments, the sweeper retracted. It should work now. My friend, he's trapped up there. The guy looked at his fellow worker and grinned. Man can't get trapped up there. There ain't no room. You got an eight-inch slot from the sweeper and maybe a two-by-two cage. Your friend ain't up there. I saw him climb up, said Tony. Not up there. The two men started back up the alley. Tony glanced upward into the darkness and then ducked his head back into the alley. Danny and the others watched him closely. Where's Mike? Tony swallowed once and stroked his chin. He glanced back at the wall. Tell us, tell us, Tony, what's the answer? Sweep the sweeper. All three of these stories are impact stories. Just throwing up science fiction or props is like setting up a carnival. It's the screaming on the roller coaster or the kissing in the tunnel that's most meaningful. Alma Guinness reacts to Jack's sadistic bullying. Miranda is distraught at the idea of Roy being destroyed. And with realities converging, Mike mourns the loss of his wife. The next episode, Crossroads, a man caught between two worlds. Oh, gee, I wonder who that was. Sarge, two punks tormenting an old man, get thrown into World War II. And then the ultimate salesman, justice being served to some rotten SOB. That is next time, and this is this time, and I thank you listening to Fitting on the Air. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittinbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.